This is episode 50 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, the companion podcast for Calvary's Read the Whole Bible in a Year plan. We are rapidly approaching the end, and today we are tackling a number, or the last few of Paul's letters, generally called the pastorals, because they're addressed to, rather than whole churches, they're addressed to individual figures or leaders in these churches, and also the Epistle of James. We have a question. Oh, we have a question. Um, I'm going to put this to you, Pastor Ben. Um, What happened to the spirits that possessed the pigs when they ran over the cliff? Certain answer would be that we don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us. So that's that's what I would say. In terms of my personal speculation, (laughs) you know, I don't think... At least it seems like that spiritual beings cannot be harmed by physical circumstances. So I don't think that the demons were hurt or anything, you know, by the pigs being drowned. I suppose that that we could maybe think of it as, as some sort of like a, a... It was a casting out. He cast them out of the man, you know. But in another place, Jesus refers to, you know, when you cast out an evil spirit from someone, it roams around the wilderness, you know, kind of seeking another refuge. And so, and we've talked way, way back, we kind of talked about the very ancient and widespread kind of cultural association between the wilderness and and the demonic in the Middle East, which is still true today. Uh, And so I think that maybe we could we could sort of imagine that they were were doomed to wander right because they specifically asked jesus well in that story do they say don't send us to the pit or do they just say let us go into the pigs let us go into the pigs okay so in other exorcism stories they beg jesus not to send them to the pit or to the abyss which seems to be you know basically this place where evil spirits are sent and then they're stuck there like a prison and so these evil spirits didn't want to go there they wanted to remain free and Jesus allows that. Uh, that I think kind of backs us into some other questions about well, why would he do that, and you know, and all that kind of thing. Um, but I, I don't think we shouldn't read it as a concession to the evil spirits. Like Jesus is like, oh, you know, that's fine. I'll let you roam free. Like, you know, I think that there's a uh, just speaking to that story of the of the demoniac more generally. I think that the whole the pigs part of that I think is an important part. I think it's a part that we don't, and me right now, you know, don't fully understand in terms of like, why did that happen? Why did Jesus do that? What does that have to do with, you know, the man being being rescued from the demons? Um, so anyway, so all of that to say, again, in brief, the Bible doesn't tell us directly, but I think that we can probably infer from some other scriptures and and I think just general theological opinion that they were they were being made to just wander in the in the wilderness, whatever that looks like for a spiritual being. So Philemon is the shortest of Paul's letters in the New Testament. Um, It's the one often that is memorized by students who have been told they have to memorize a book of Paul's. They pick the shortest one. Um, Philemon, though, is, despite being short, very important. Um, So the, the story of Philemon is we have Paul writing a letter. It is tied often to um, the, the book of Colossians. And so we have, uh, we have Paul writing to this man named Philemon who has a slave that has escaped named Onesimus. And I think Onesimus is mentioned at the end of Colossians. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And so we have in this, um, Onesimus has escaped from Philemon um, and become a Christian with Paul. So Paul, um, after Onesimus becomes a Christian, sends him back to Philemon out of a desire to fulfill righteousness. But he sends him along with this letter. And this letter seems to lean pretty heavy on Philemon that he is to release Onesimus. Um, welcome him as a brother and not as a slave. And so one of the common criticisms of the New Testament is that it does not outright condemn slavery. And I think that that is a unfair um, criticism to level in that slavery was endemic into this culture. And every time it's mentioned in the New Testament, I think I can say every time, if not every time, then nearly every time, what is pointed to are changes in how slaves are to be seen and treated in a way that will lead eventually to um, the Christian-led emancipation of slaves all over the world. And I think that is the the direction Paul is trying to point towards. Yeah. I I, I mean, I think it's an an understandable criticism. You know, you would think, Mm -hmm. you know, and I understand, yeah. I understand why people ask this or kind of, you know, use this line of thinking of like, well, if, if, if the Bible is the word of God, if these men were speaking for God, God is probably anti-slavery, <laughs> we think, you know, and so why wouldn't it be clearer, you know, if the trajectory was supposed to be towards freeing these slaves or whatever else. And so I, I get that, you know, I think it's hard because we don't know. You know, the Bible doesn't explain anything in terms of like, and this is why it's said this way, you know, so we we just, not bad questions to ask, but there's just not, you know, there's just not a good answer. I think that it, I think that part of that answer, though, is that Philemon is in the Bible, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's a, it's a, not only, they're, they're all personal letters, meaning they're from a particular group of people to another particular group of people. But Philemon is even narrower because it's to a, a one individual. Like, it's addressed, you know, I guess that's not true. It's addressed to a few of the people who, who meet in that, the, the house church. But Philemon principally a single individual. And it's about freeing his slave. You know, and so I think that, that this is Paul's answer. You know, this is the New Testament's answer to this you know, the Christian readers across the Roman world would be now reading Philemon as part of their sacred scripture, many of them having slaves as well, you know, and and I don't think there was any way to, to avoid thinking about that, you know. Mm-hmm. Your slaves, though, many of those slaves also sitting in the church meeting with you, if they're Christian people, listening to Philemon being read, you know, and, and, and taught about and taught. And so, yeah, I think that there's a... I think that in some ways it tracks with a lot of what we saw in the Old Testament that, you know, there are laws that we wish were a little different than they were, right? So in like in Deuteronomy, when it talks about taking women captive from from conquered other conquered groups, we wish it would say, you know, you can you can well not take these women captive at all, but you just let them make their own choices. And and I think part of the the reading or part of the understanding of that is appreciating the fact that what Deuteronomy is saying is a major step forward from kind of the, the cultural baseline of that day and age, which is when you could do whatever you wanted with whoever, you know, and Deuteronomy is saying, no, there's constraints. These are real people, you know. So I think Philemon in some ways is the same is the same way of you, know, you can't go. Nobody, no culture can do a 180 degree flip we're the same way we will be judged you know on the things we have done uh and 
and I think that God rather, I think it's, I think it's, it is a sign of God's graciousness and God's patience with us that he doesn't demand those sorts of, you know, gigantic changes so quickly. Uh, or if he does, then the Holy Spirit is there to make that happen. You know, you think of like in the individual's life, right? Often when people come to faith, there is a lot of 180 degree turnings, but that's the Holy Spirit's doing. That's not you, you know, suddenly making the the jump. Um, yeah. No, this is a good letter as you read it. <clears throat> Be encouraged um, that Paul's desire for this brother, this slave that had become a Christian was to be free. Well, yeah. And I, I know that a common tactic and I'm, I'm, I feel the, the pull to do it now too, is just to also just say that, you know, slavery in the ancient world is not quite the same thing. Right. You know, we as Americans have a particular legacy and yes. history of slavery of chattel slavery that we must process and deal with. And that it is the same thing in terms of other people owning people, <laughs> you know, people owning people. Yes, that's true. But I think in terms of, yeah, when, when you use the phrase chattel slavery, like in the ancient world, generally speaking, you know, slaves were more, they were slaves. I'm not denying that. But many of them were actually paid a small amount. You know, they could purchase their freedom. They were more what we would consider to be servants uh, or like staff people. And slaves could attain pretty high ranks of authority and status while still being slaves, which is kind of weird to think about, you know. Um, so it's not, yeah, it isn't quite the same. And I, I think that's just important to, to remember as well. I think that one of the reasons that's important to remember is that in, again, our history as Americans, that lots of Christian leaders in the past use the New Testament on the one hand to say that the slaves needed to be freed in the South, but then also to defend the institution of slavery on the basis of the fact that the New Testament never comes right out and says you should just free all your slaves. And I think that if there if there had been, well, <laughs> that's not true. I was going to say if there had been more historical awareness, I mean, there, they would have found other reasons to justify it. But, yes. but I think one of the failures there was a failure to understand the fact that, that what Paul and the, the early church were we're dealing with or encountering was different than yeah than uh, the slave trade with slavery in in americans america's history well i think one of the one of the best parts of that for us to understand the the hearts of southern slave owners um, and also what scripture says about slavery is the southern slave owners really didn't want their slaves reading and the thing that they didn't want them reading was the bible All right and the reason they didn't want them reading the bible is because it would tell them they should be free um mm-hmm. And so I, I think that we can, at least slaves in the South felt like scripture right. <laughs> called for freedom. Rightly, and I, yeah. I think that, that, that their opinion should matter. Um, so Philippians, it is easily, I think, Paul's kindest letter. Mm-hmm. Um, he's writing to a church that he is just very fond of, that he's very thankful to. There is a bit in chapter three where Paul gets... Pretty, pretty harsh, but not with the Philippians, but with uh, these wandering preachers and teachers that we've talked about him interacting with or, or dialoguing with in the past. Um, but what we have in Philippians is a lot about um, thankfulness for generosity. We see a lot from Paul about Jesus. Um, the Philippians poem in Philippians chapter 2 is here. Um, we see a lot about Paul um, not being bound by his past, but seeing his identity in Jesus as being the most important thing about him. 
There's just so much here. A lot of verses get pulled from Philippians and quoted often. Um, Joy, joy is a major theme in Philippians. And it's also, we should note that by this point, Paul is in prison, probably. Yes, he's in prison. So he's writing Philemon from prison because Onesimus came to him Mm -hmm. while he was imprisoned, right? And so all the rest of Paul's letters are written from prison. Is that right? That we're looking at today? Second Timothy certainly was. I don't know if we know with Titus. Does he mention yeah, prison in Titus? Maybe he doesn't. But we're in the sort of end game of the prison Paul's letters, ministry here yes. where he's he's getting caught and imprisoned. And, and there's also some debate as to how many times he was imprisoned. And, and I don't think that really needs to concern us today. Um, yeah. And we've we've said this on Sunday mornings. Prisons in the ancient world were different. Were pretty um, you could you could not depend on the prison to keep you alive. When you're in prison, it would be necessary to like have people come and bring you food, or else you were not likely to eat. Um, bring you blankets, or else you were likely to freeze. I mean, it was just it was bad. It was really really bad. Um, now, having said that. House arrest, which is something that Paul is on at some points in his his career, is a whole different ballgame. House arrest was being kept in a single place and not allowed to leave and sometimes could be much better than than prison. Um, And those are those were different kinds of circumstances. Yeah, Paul is Paul is suffering when he writes Philippians. Okay, Um, my wife's favorite Bible verse is in Philippians. Oh. It's Philippians 4.4. 4. This is a lot of people's favorite Bible verse, I imagine, but I, it's in, I will say it here. It's rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And that is, I think, a beautiful statement coming from Paul, who, as we've said, was in the midst of suffering. What do we so, say about oh, the pastoral epistles, Pastor Ben? <laughs> Read at your own risk. Because <clears throat> um. <laughs> they'll get you. <laughs> Well, so a common, I guess, Second Timothy is a little different. So maybe we'll, maybe we can we can tackle First Timothy and Titus together, because there are, I think, some significant similarities. One of them, or the big one, I think, between Titus and Timothy is this concern about church leadership. Uh, who can be a leader in the church? What does it mean to be a leader in the church? So I don't know if you could just speak into that a little bit for us in terms of why was that a concern at this point. And yeah. what is Paul talking about when he talks about deacons, overseers, bishops, presbyters? Oof. Because he probably doesn't mean the dudes and the robes and the hats that we have today. At least not exactly. Not exactly. <laughs> I think that, you know, the it makes sense that this is, you know, towards the end of Paul's ministry. So he's been planting churches now for a long time. He He is getting old. His helpers are getting old. And... You know, I think that it makes sense that the churches are now having to kind of stand on their own two feet in terms of they can't just kind of appeal to their apostles because they're all aging and dying. And, and you know, so they need to kind of have internal leadership and wisdom. And I think it's I think that as I've continued to reflect on all of that, you know, and reflect on these letters of like that there seems to be kind of in our evangelical camp of Christianity and I think it's, I think the fever has broken, but I think that it still remains that we kind of have this, this sort of obsession about leadership, <laughs> leadership as an idea, you know, leadership about like, well, who's in charge, you know, and who blah, 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 who has authority. And, and uh, 
I think on the one hand, it's important for those, those are, that's an important conversation because if nobody is in charge, then everybody's in charge (laughs) and then nothing, you know, you can't, Mm -hmm. an organization can't really exist. There needs to, there needs to be some sort, some sort of a, a hierarchy or a system. But having said that, you know, so you, you look at what Paul's talking about, you know, he talks about elders and I don't remember, I don't remember who it is. I haven't actually read the whole book that I'm about to talk about. I haven't read it at all, but I've read a summary of it, and it's on my reading list. But just kind of examining these terms, you know, elder, deacon, bishop. And I think... No, sorry, I didn't answer that part of your question at all. No, it's fine. Putting forward... Well, because it is all connected. Putting Mm -hmm. forward this understanding of like, so elder, you know, we should know that word from the Old Testament, right? The Jewish communities, Hebrew communities were led by elders. And it's quite likely, we've said this before, that many of these early churches are either synagogues that have turned into churches or portions of synagogue communities that have transplanted into some Gentile's house. And so that means literally that the elders in the synagogue are now the elders at the Mm -hmm. church. (laughs) You know, and so Paul, and that doesn't mean that Gentiles can't be elders, And I think that is part of Paul's point in these letters is saying, so it's not just the Jewish Christians that can serve as elders, but actually the Gentiles can as well. Uh, And so I think that's an important point. And then the word deacon is, I believe it's really just the Greek word for servant or one of the words for servant. Elder literally means older person. Deacon literally means servant. Deacon means servant. And overseer, is is it related to shepherd? Am I right about that? Yeah, let me see here. Let me find it. Well, anyway, I think that the the point made by this book that I haven't actually read yet, just the, basically the idea is that none of these, you know, so you, you should notice the words that are not included in church leadership, like president or king or dictator or general or anything like that, right? But we're talking about elders, grandparents, shepherds, servants, you know, so like that is that is putting forward, I think, a theory of what Christian leadership should look like. That is in lockstep with what Jesus tells us, right? The Gentiles lorded over one another, not so with you, you know, he tells his disciples. And so, yes, there are leaders in the church, but we call those leaders servants, shepherds, and grandpa, you know, or or grandparents, so to speak. And, you know, most of us have had grandparents. We all know how it works, right? Your parents are the ones who actually do the, like, disciplining, and grandma and grandpa are there to, like, spoil you rotten, (laughs) I'm not saying that's exactly the same dynamic, but just that, that I think the the office of an elder is much more of a a kind of soft touch yes. authority than a, a firm touch authority. You yes. Know? And and that was true then, you know, again, it's true now. And so I, I say all of that just to say that I think that's a needed corrective for us. You know, and even the word pastor, right, is related to shepherd. Shepherd mm-hmm. pastors related to pasture, you know. And so it's like a shepherd doesn't drive the sheep, you know, he doesn't, you know, the sheep. Anyway, I think you know what I mean, that it's about guidance, you know, protection, comfort, not, you know, driving, directing. The most common use of authority should be relational, not hierarchical. Well, or again, look back to the example of Jesus, you know, that his his expression of authority and leadership was to get down on the floor and wash his disciples' feet. feet. Well, which really just speaks to his express the way the way he became king was by dying on a cross, yes. you know. And so I think again this this obsession with like, well, who's in charge, and and can women be in charge? Can men be in charge? Who can be in charge? It's like, all right, all right, let's all just we need to take a step back. Christ is in charge. The end. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, and it can't just be the end. And I know, Paul knows I that. Know. And, and so that's and, why and, these so there, and like I said, there doesn't have to be a hierarchy, but it's a hierarchy of who gets down on the floor first yes. <laughs> to wash the disciples' feet. Well, and that's that's a very good point. Is that we we are authority obsessed and uh, or overly focused and. For us, leadership tends to go to the business world where we think of CEOs or presidents or so on. And the the picture of, of leadership in the, the New Testament is exactly that. It's it's who gets to be the greater servant. Um, that's who, who's going to be the lead sufferer, who's going to be the – and I think that that matters. Um and right. if our suffer is a good way to put it. <laughs> if our, our, if our <laughs> attitude about leadership is wrong – then we're not ready to even have a serious discussion about who gets authority. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, and that, again, what does that even look like in a church context? Mm-hmm. Because it shouldn't look like, and it's, I'm not saying that the business world or anything of those is necessarily bad. Obviously a lot of wickedness can be done there. A lot of wickedness can be done in churches, yes. but I think that again, yeah, that, that spiritual leadership does not, is not of the same form no. as business leadership or military leadership. And I'm not saying those things are bad again, there are good, noble forms of that as well, but they're yeah. different than what spiritual leadership should look like. Right. In an army, you can't have soft touches right. um, <laughs> as, as leaders. You need, you need firm authority, right? Because you're, in, you're dealing with urgent matters all the time. Um, in churches, the body of believers is supposed to be a representation of the body of Christ or the actual body of Christ at work in the world. And the Spirit speaks through its people. It's one of the reasons why I love the way that Calvary does church structure. We have a congregational model. You and I, on one hand, we have a lot of authority in that we decide what the sermon subjects are going to be, things like that. And that's a, that's, that matters. That's a big deal. At the same time, um, you and I don't decide what the thermostats are set to. Right. Um, you and I don't decide what events can happen here and can't. You and I don't decide who the next deacons we or can't trustees. Hire or fire each we can't other. hire and fire each other. <laughs> Thank goodness. Um, that was a joke. Um, but and so a lot of what would normally be thought of as the seat of authority is just not what leadership as a pastor looks like at all at Calvary. And I'm thankful for that every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think just to turn a little bit more onto the the men women side of that, which I appreciated your comments about. Sure. This the whole leadership idea because I think that First Timothy especially can be a uh, controversial, you know, disappointing uh, read, you know, for sure. people to be like, why did he say that? Like, what what is going on? And the verses that come into mind most are chapter two, verses eleven to fifteen, which read: A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So, um, this seems pretty conclusive that women are not supposed to talk. They're supposed to be quiet and submit, right? I don't think it's as simple. Um, You have uneducated women. Paul says that they should learn. And again, we talked about with slavery, Paul points in the direction he wants things to go. And I think that one of the the clues we get from Paul here is that, of course, women shouldn't be running church. They can't read the Bible in the language it was written in. Um, they're, not, they're not educated. They're not ready. Um, but he wants them to learn. And he says learn in quietness and full submission in the Torah. That's how all students of the Torah were to learn. That phrase is used in the Old Testament to describe how people should learn Torah. 
And so when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man, she must be quiet. That word quiet doesn't actually mean silence. It means kind of meekness. And so it seems like what Paul is saying is until education happens, they should not be running things. And I, I think that's okay. Um, but all this is wrapped up in the, not just in the leadership questions of the time, but as we go back to it and, and look at it from today's perspective, it's difficult to suss out. And I know that there are people in our church who are very convinced that Paul did not ever want a woman to have any kind of authority in a church. I know that there are people in our church who are convinced that Paul is not talking about that and that he thinks that women can have leadership positions of all kinds. I tend to be more in the latter camp, but it is a real good biblical question. And I don't think we're not interested in sitting here and trying to convince folks, you know, but maybe just to to point the way to maybe some questions to ask or just things to consider as we're sure. as we're reading cuz like you said we acknowledge there are those in our church who yeah, are Yeah, feel pretty strongly. who feel well, very they... strongly that that women ought not be in leadership you know whereas Clayton and I are not we don't well I think we feel pretty strongly the opposite way I mean I don't want to speak for you but um what the women must be in leadership well not must but <laughs> That I mean, it's open, that Paul is not saying yeah. that should never happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that the first question to ask here is, can you take it literally? I mean, are you comfortable with that? So so as I read verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Um, so if we're going to take Paul at, at the face of it with the English translation, our women should not be speaking when it comes to leadership, when it comes to authority, when it comes to meetings. Um, and, and I, I guess if we want to assume, a uh, not be willing to look at the context that the, or not think that the context could matter too greatly, I think we need to ask if we're comfortable with that sitting as it is. And I imagine we might, for the most of us find that's a little uncomfortable. Well, or to go further down. And when Paul says that she will be saved through childbearing, it's like, all right. So if you believe that literally that she'll be saved by having children you have left behind christian orthodoxy and we need to be careful here because and you're not saying this we're not saying that paul is like when we say you're not believing him literally um he doesn't i mean he's not trying to say a person will be saved eternally to heaven through childbearing like that's just not he means not there at all just well, he means literally they will be saved through childbearing, meaning they'll be delivered through childbearing, mm-hmm. which is a very dangerous process or can be, you know, life-threatening or lethal. And so I think that one of the things I would urge us to be, to think about is, and we've talked, we've referenced this a few times, but just that translations are translations. We have tried to walk the balance between pointing out to you where we feel like translations generally fail while also not and truly not wanting to undermine our confidence in our translations because for the most part i think our english translations are good they're reliable oh they're incredibly good they are they are a true reflection of what the original texts say like let you know that's that's what i'd say i think there are points at which they really do tend to struggle struggle or or kind of get in their own way and 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 i think that makes sense the translations are made by people people aren't perfect you know and and again it's god has patience with us we're all on a journey like in another hundred years hopefully some of these more notorious wrinkles will have been will have been worked out you know in in our english translations but i think that these verses in paul are one of those spots 
And I think that the proof of that is that saved is probably not the best way to translate that verb in that sentence. It should be delivered uh, or it should be, you know, whatever, however you want to say it. But I think that 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 indicates to us that there's some there's just some choppiness with what's happening with the translation. So I would point that out. I would also say, you know, Paul will later go on to talk about widows in Timothy at a pretty significant length. Mm-hmm. And there's actually a fair amount of evidence that widows, that that being a widow of the church was actually a form of church office. Like, I mean, these women were literally widows, but when you became a widow, you kind of were this, this, this support ministry that visited and helped and distributed goods and I mean, we talked way, way back about the women at the door of the the tabernacle with the mirrors, you know, just this throwaway line that's like, oh, I wish they would have given us more detail about that. But just this idea that, you know, that throughout the, the story of the Bible, you know, we see consistently that there are always groups of faithful women, usually in the background, helping the thing hold together, you know, helping the show hold together. And that's still true here, you know, and that and that Paul is is addressing these widows, uh, and and who can be a widow, you know, and I think that that you know obviously that's a non that sounds like a nonsense sentence if he's literally talking about who can be a woman whose husband has died. <laughs> you know, right. Well, of course. Well, he says no widow can be on the list of widows. In other words, right. The list of widows is not just comprised of all right, the widows right. in the and church. So he is addressing himself to women who are holding a certain office. And that we also need to appreciate, you know, and Clayton mentioned this earlier, that, you know, some of the the Gentile pagan worship, you know, different kind of guilds of priests and priestesses as they were becoming Christians, which makes sense. They were bringing their old assumptions and things with them. But another cultural dynamic is for these churches that were meeting in people's homes, the wife generally was the ruler of the house. You know, the man went out and did the the things, you know, and the woman was sort of in charge of what happened in the home. And so for a meeting to be happening in a home, I think it would be natural to look to the wife as the leader. (laughs) She's the host of the meeting. And so I think that we need to acknowledge that, you know, and I say all that just to say it was not, we have to acknowledge that it was not clear cut 2000 years ago that only men were holding positions of authority in the church only men were leading these meetings they weren't you know yeah. um, that's just not true and so that's not that is not what Paul's talking about it can't right. be now the question about what we should do today can be different than that but first Timothy 2 especially is one of the places where people go primarily for this issue and I think the point we would just want to make is it does not seem like it's saying what a lot of the times people think that it's saying well if, yeah. if you are, uh, what we do want you to hear too, if you are a person who believes that um, the senior pastor, for example, should only be a man, um, I, want you to, I want you to hear that that's okay. You, that is not a bad belief for you to have. Um, and what we're not saying is that you are, you are bad or wrong in some way for doing that, no. for thinking that way. And I think that, that, I think that part of why this can be so fraught is that I think it really does, it cuts into the heart of, well, what is the Bible and how do we read it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that that is part of why it can get so uh, heated so quickly, you know, for people, whether they can articulate it at that level or not. I mean, I think that's what we're talking about, you know, that we can't, and we've said this over and over in the Old Testament, we cannot take one-to-one, you know, lessons. Leviticus is not giving modern Christians any advice on skin care, medical care, cooking, none of that. Yes. People get a lot more rascally 
when it comes to the letters in the New Testament and whether we can take one-to-one, you know, direction or advice from there. And I think that, you know, again, you see these inconsistencies that like Paul will also talk about greeting one another with a holy kiss. Well, none of us do that and we're not going to start. You know, it's like, all right, well, how is that different? You know, we de- we've decided culturally not to take that as a one-to-one, that women shouldn't wear any jewelry, that men should always raise their hands when they pray. We don't follow those things either. I'm not saying we should. I'm just saying we should open the hood on that and examine why are we, how are we picking <laughs> what we're saying, you know, yeah. doesn't need to be followed one-to-one and what we are. You know, and Paul is writing two specific people, two specific groups, but he's he's applying the universal truth of the gospel to these specific groups, right? And so I think that, that part of what we have to do as responsible readers certainly is understand his specific instructions, but then also think about how are his specific instructions an application of the gospel to this situation. And then that helps us understand how we can then apply it to our situation, mm-hmm. right? And to say with this specific thing, you know, so Paul's writing to Timothy these things about women in the church. Is it because they are women or is it because they're being jerks? <laughs> and I think that's a very important question. And I, and I would just put that to you, listener. Go think about that. Mm-hmm. Is it because they're women or is it because they're jerks? And what do we already know from Genesis and from the ministry of Jesus about Yahweh's love and valuing of women that may help us, you know, see these things in, in the way that he wants us to. Yeah. So 2 Timothy is Paul's probably final letter. He's definitely in prison. Pretty sure he's about to be executed. Uh, <clears throat> and traditionally, the understanding is, is that he was executed sometime in the mid-60s, right? Beheaded mm-hmm. under the Emperor Nero. Timothy, Second Timothy, I think. Well, let me let me put it in the form of a question. Like as you read Second Timothy, you know, so this is a mentor writing to his his manatee, his mentee, and this is a older Christian kind of giving his last. It's sort of do, it's sort of a very short Deuteronomy, right? Kind of a farewell address. Yeah. Like what, if any, kind of principles or or kind of wisdom about discipleship both as someone who is a disciple of jesus and then also someone who which hopefully most christians even if it's just very informally would have people that they're sort of discipling you know younger folks that they're they spend time with and kind of model a christian life to like what are yeah what would be some do you feel like some some wisdom some lessons about discipleship that that come from second timothy yeah that's a good question I think that if I were to try to to take this down into a few sentences of what Paul is trying to say about discipleship, it's this. This should, you should take this very seriously. It really matters. Don't mess around. Like, I mean, the, the, he tells Timothy a bunch of things to do and a bunch of things not to do. And again, most of them fall, come, come down to listen. Jesus is real. His call in your life is real. Your, the need you have to pursue him is real. There is a devil. There's inside of you all kinds of bad desires to do things. You should resist those with every ounce of your being. And then you should live in the midst of that conflict. And that's what discipleship is. I mean, it is a, a letter with a lot of 
very clear instructions about what to do and what not to do, a very high view of scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talks specifically to Timothy as a preacher, which which gets me in my heart um, in chapter four and and gives the same kind of instructions about preaching, that this is a serious thing. It's not a, a thing to be taken lightly. It is eternally significant. You are in the midst of a battle, whether you realize it or not, and you should live in the awareness that that's what's happening. Um, but I do, I think, I think take this seriously would be Paul's, I don't know, condensed ver- vision of discipleship in, in 2 Timothy. So as we, we'll talk about James here in a minute, but as we leave Paul behind, kind of what, if any, kind of big thoughts oh. or reflections might we have <laughs> just on kind of this read through as we've, as we've kind of taken the, as the academics say, the Pauline corpus <laughs> as one. Um, what do we what do we get from Paul? My gosh, what we see in Paul is for you for this read through. Has there been any? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because otherwise, that's too big of a question. <laughs> I'm not going to say who it is, um, but this this thought occurred to me more than once reading reading Acts and Paul, Paul's letters this time through. And it's a thought I've had before, but it just stuck with me. Uh, there's someone in our church, I'm pretty sure they don't listen to the podcast, but I'm still not going to say who they are, that thinks that they are, they have done such bad um, that God cannot possibly think well of them. And Paul is a tremendous testimony to the, the fact that our God is a redeemer, mm. that no matter what has happened in our past, It does not dictate our future and that he does not look at us and see the worst things we've ever done. He looks at us and sees his beloved children. And I think Paul would affirm that lesson from his life. Um, I think that he would say amen to that. I'd say that that has more than anything else occurred to me over and over again as I've read Paul this time through. And while the person I'm thinking of specifically will probably never hear this, if you listener also struggle with that. Um, you probably have not led to the led intentionally to the execution of other believers. Um, and so you've probably not done anything like as bad as Paul did. And so finally, James, <laughs> one of the brothers of Jesus. But if you if you think like as you hear about um, James the Apostle, this is almost certainly not James the Apostle. It's almost certainly James the brother of Jesus. Right. James, the original disciple, was killed pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. He's the first of them to be martyred. So probably not that guy. One of Jesus' brothers. I'm sure there is a fascinating, uplifting story about how this man came to faith in his brother, Yeshua, as the Messiah, which we do not have in the Bible, unfortunately. I bet the resurrection pretty well did that. (laughs) So we'll have to ask him someday and be like, tell us how you came to faith. As much as the resurrection would have been impactful for the apostles, be seeing your brother, big brother or little brother, come back from the dead might be yeah, that would have been something. reflecting back on how he never got in trouble with your parents. He never did anything wrong. These might and be then clues. to think about, yeah, what what did Jesus say to James when he when he appeared to him? But anyway, so the only thing I had, James, the famous thing, the reason why Martin Luther hated it uh, is this whole thing of faith and works. <laughs> so in chapter two. I'll just read you the whole thing and you can uh, you can just tell us what it means. 
What Mm. use is it, my dear family, if someone says they have faith when they don't have works? Can faith save such a person? Supposing a brother or sister is without clothing and is short even of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, be full, but doesn't give them what their bodies need. What use is that? In the same way, faith, all by itself and without works, is dead. But supposing someone says, Well, you have faith and I have works. All right, show me your faith, but without doing any works, and then I will show you my faith, and I'll do it by my works. You believe that God is one, well and good. The demons believe that too, and they tremble. Do you want to know, you stupid person, that faith without works is lifeless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by his works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You can see from this that faith was working together with the works, and the faith reached its fulfillment through the works. That is how the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. So you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she gave shelter to the spies and sent them off by another road? Just as the body without the spirit is dead, you see, so faith without works is dead. One of the questions that we have a lot is what does faith mean? It, we tend to think of faith as a thinky thing, a head thing, um, that faith and belief mean exactly the same thing. In fact, um, often we translate them one or the other interchangeably. But faith is bigger than that. And that seems to be what James is saying here, is that, if you, that, that life change and committed doing of righteousness is part of what faith is. So... It can't just be about beliefs because if it was just about beliefs, then demons would all go to heaven um, because they know they know theology better than we do. Uh, their beliefs are more accurate than ours. The What James seems to be saying here is you cannot get by just by showing up to church and saying yes to the things, thinking that makes you part of the family, and then living the rest of your life as though none of those things matter. That has been a problem the church has faced since its very beginning. We see evidence of it here. I was reading, it's been a year or so ago since I went through it, but I was a third century pastor talking about how um, in their time things are, immorality is so rampant because people don't want to take their faith seriously until they're at their deathbed. Um, this is a, a common problem. Not a, Every generation is prone to thinking that theirs is the first to deal with it. But we see it here in James. And so what I would say to you, dear listener, um, if you are a person with faith in Jesus, then know that that should be reflected in your life. Your life should be, should be characterized by good deeds. Not perfectly, but they should be present. And if they are not, then something is wrong. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton.